Okay, so picking right back up here in Ephesians where um, Manny had left off last time. And so let me recap kind of that section very, very briefly so you kind of understand where we're jumping back into today. So if you guys remember, the last section of Ephesians, Paul highlighted a particular reality for us that Manny brought out in Christ. And it was this idea that we are children of light. You guys remember that, what Manny brought out last time in Ephesians? We ended there in chapter 5 of 14 with that with that specific exhortation. You are to be a light because you are children of light. And so, uh, we, we were given this call that as a redeemed people of God, right? God has, has, has done something new in our lives, right? And, and because of that, we are to live a life then by what God has done for us in the reality that you all as Christians have been given new life, and you've been brought into God's light, His goodness, His mercy. But the result of this, as we're going to see today, is not only this idea that you are to live differently, right? The result of becoming a a child of light, of, of becoming God's and being a light, is not only that you are called to live differently. That part is true, and Manny brought some of that out for us. But now that you have been made a light, you've been made a child of light, you've actually been given a new task. Not just to live differently, but to do something different. You have been given a task and a duty to shine as a light, as your job. So just as the truth of the gospel, brethren, you remember this as you were saved. The truth of the gospel came to you and God's light shined upon you and saved you. What are you now tasked to do? Well, you are to now, as a child of light, shine as a light and imitate God by shining that light on people who are in darkness, just as you were in darkness. And brethren, when this happens, as we are lights in the world, as Manny brought out last time, there's going to be something that happens in light of this, right? We are going to collide then with darkness, right? Because the idea of shining the light is to expose sin and evil works of unbelievers and to call them to come to Christ. And so now as children of light, as you encounter the darkness, you will be colliding with this darkness. And brethren, you need to think about that then is this is a weighty task. Being a child of light is not a cute phrase Paul uses about the Christian. This is a weighty task, which is why then in our section here today, beginning in Ephesians 5.15, it shouldn't surprise us that Paul begins here by saying this. Look carefully, right? Look carefully then how you walk. Why? Well, brethren, think about it. Your new status. What's your new status? Child of light. Right? That's who you are now, which means you have a new task. You're to shine light as Christ shined light. And so Paul wants you to then consider carefully how you walk. Brethren, in his mind, careful attention is not an option. You're a child of light and you shine as a light in the world. You must give careful attention to how you walk in this life. But he gets more specific in our section here today. Not only does he tell us you should walk carefully, but he qualifies it by saying you must give careful attention to how you use your time. 
And so he qualifies that phrase. You ought to walk carefully. You ought to walk well. Well, how? You need to watch how you use your time. As Paul is going to qualify there in verse 16 of what we heard at the beginning, making the best use of the time. Or as I like in the old King James version, right? Redeeming the time. I, I think that's, I think that's a, I like that phrase better. So this is going to be Paul's consideration here in this section in 15 through 21. How do we as children of the light walk well? And by walking well, he means specifically, how do you make best use of the time? How do you redeem the time? And that's Paul's consideration. And brethren, it's going to be our consideration here this morning. So in this section of Ephesians 15 through 21, Paul's going to lay out two central commands for us, and he's going to answer two questions. Why are, to we, why are we to redeem the time is going to be the first thing that he answers for us. Why, why do we have to do this? And then second is going to be, how are, to we, how are we to redeem the time? Right? Why are we to redeem the time? And then if we are to redeem the time, which is going to be yes, how are we to do it? How are we able to walk well and shine brightly as lights in the world? So, those are going to be the two things that Paul brings out here in these two questions that he's going to answer for us in this section of the text. So let's look right here at the beginning of our section in 15, and let's ask ourselves the question then, why are we to redeem the time? Look with me here at verses 15 and 16 one more time. Paul says, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. So right off the get-go, as we read the surface level of the text, Paul is saying that we ought to what? Make the best use of the time, or as I've already said, we could translate this, and I'll kind of use this interchangeably as we go on, redeeming the time. Same, same kind of phrase, make best use, redeem the time, synonymous with one another. And then he says, why? Why are we to make the best use of our time? Well, in 16, because the days are evil, is what Paul says. And so, there's a qualification that Paul gives for why we need to be making the best use of our time. The days are evil. But you probably already have the question in your own mind, as I've had this question in my mind for years as a Christian. What does Paul mean by the phrase, the days are evil? So I want to give you just a simple definition here that I think will help us understand that phrase here a little better. And what, what, is Paul, what is Paul meaning by the days are evil? Well, the term evil here, brethren, as, as you look there in verse 16, that could be translated and understood as uh, tumultuous or calamitous. Now, we don't really use those words a lot in English. Those are kind of big words. But you may, you may get a feeling of what those words signify, tumultuous or calamitous. And we could say what, those, what that means is that days are filled with difficulty, right? A tumultuous day, a calamitous day is one that is filled with difficulty or turmoil or hardship, right? So, and this could be caused by a number of different reasons, right? Trials and temptations of your everyday life, right, could be causes of this, right? Causes of difficulty, causes of hardship, or hardship can also come through opposition to us as children of light because of enemies of the gospel. 
So the, the result of all of that is that our days are difficult and hard, right? And, and you recognize then that in the Christian life, because every, every uh, day to day, you have to go through these struggles and these difficulties. You have barriers that you have to overcome in your everyday walk. And I think this is what Paul is hinting at when he says that the days are evil. He's telling you, these days are filled with trouble and hardship as a Christian. Is that not the case? So I want you to listen then to 15 and 16 again, kind of with that idea in mind, with this definition in mind. And maybe it just helps kind of ease the flow and thought of this passage. So let's listen now to Ephesians 5, 15 to 16 again. And I'm going to plug in my own definition here. Right? Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are filled with difficulty and hardship. And can we all amen that? <laughs> that the days of our life at being a Christian are filled with difficulty and hardship, even in a place like America? So I, I think with that definition, then, brethren, it kind of helps us to grasp what Paul is getting at. He is calling you to consider this morning, calling us to consider how we walk, how we use our time rightly, because Paul, I think, rightly recognizes a truth. And that is the Christian life and the Christian task to be a light out in the world will be, <laughs> will be filled with difficulty and hardship. So as you try to live this Christian life, brethren, you're going to encounter hardship and difficulty, which is why then Paul's command to you ought to come ringing very personally. You got to make best use of the time because your days, brethren, will be filled with hardship and difficulty as a Christian. And brethren, more so, this is going to be the result as you go out into the world and you begin to shine a light. That darkness is not going to like this kind of thing. You collide with the darkness, this is going to be this result, brethren. And when it does, when this thing happens, you come to realize, man, my day-to-day -day life, it's filled with hardship being a Christian now, right? Trying to live like one, trying to act like one, trying to be a light to other people. And this is why Paul says, redeem the time. Because brethren, you need to think about time in a whole new fashion now as a Christian. Now that you become a Christian, your mind needs to be reset about time itself. You think about the minutes and the hours and the days of your life. They are enchained, brethren, by the shackles of hardship and difficulty. Time has been bound to sin as the world has entered into the fall, right? And, and because of this, time itself has, in, in, a, in, a, in a sense, it's almost been taken from you and, and repurposed to work against you, right? And because of this, because time can be filled with hardship and difficulty, brethren, Time, our days, our hours, our minutes, they can weigh us down. They can weigh us down, and brethren, as the warning will come later, can even cause you to wander from the truth and to fall away. And so, brethren, you need to think about time now as a Christian. Time, your day-to-day -day life, is not neutral towards you. It's not. Time, if it's not properly made use of well, brethren, it's ultimately going to make use of you. If you don't make use of time well, time, brethren, will make its use of you because time is filled with hardship and difficulty. And so, brethren, listen, 
You're either going to make that time work for you in light of God's glory, or it's ultimately, brethren, going to work against you because time will introduce trouble and hardship and difficulty. And this, again, is why Paul says we have to redeem the time. Why? Because we got to take that time back from hardship and difficulty, right? We, we got to take time back to its enslavement to difficulty and hardship, and then we got to make our best use of it. Because, brother, isn't that what redeeming something means? You have to buy something out of something, and most all the time in the Bible, it's buying something out of slavery, something that's enchained to it. And Paul says, you got to go redeem the time, which, brother, in essence is, it's like you got to go grab time by its shirt and you got to pull it out of hardship and difficulty. You have to buy it back. You have got to redeem it out of hardship and difficulty. And here's why. Because you can't remove the hardship. Brethren, you can, I, I hate to tell anyone in here this morning who hasn't experienced hardship and difficulty in the Christian life, but when it does come, you can't remove it. You can't take it out. But, brethren, you can change how you respond to hardship and what you do in the hardship. And, brethren, in doing so, then, Paul is encouraging us and exhorting us with this truth, and it should be a truth that encourages your soul this morning. If Paul can turn to you and say, redeem the time because your days are going to be filled with difficulty and hardship, then you need to know this. Time really is then redeemable. You really can redeem the time from hardship and difficulty. And so, brethren, we must be about this task. Because Paul says, this is how you walk well. So, how does Paul then instruct us to redeem the time? If we, if we have to redeem the time, why do we have to? Well, our lives are filled with all this difficulty and turmoil, but Paul reminds us, you can actually redeem this thing. How are we going to redeem the time? And so here we're moving into our second point. And Paul here is going to give us two clear exhortations in answering this question of how do we redeem the time? And the second of these exhortations, he's going to fill it up with a few examples of what it looks like. So let's answer now Paul's second question. How are we to redeem the time? Well, the first exhortation is going to come right here in verse 17. So look with me at verse 17. Paul says in verse 17, Therefore, right, because this is true, <laughs> days are filled with difficulty and you have to redeem it. He says in 17, Therefore, because of that, do not be foolish. But understand what the will of the Lord is. So Paul here, making the first connection for us about how we are to redeem the time. And brethren, he does so with a statement that is almost parallel to his previous statement that we just read there in verses 16 and 17. Just as we're to be careful how we walk and not as unwise people, which is what he says in verse 15 but as those who redeem the time. So now, he said, as he says here in 17, we are not to be foolish, right? So it's almost like he's got these parallel statements. In 15, 
don't be unwise people, right? And now he's saying, don't be foolish. Very similar thought. But understand what the will of the Lord is. And so you can take these two statements then and kind of hang them up side by side. And you can get this greater understanding of what Paul is getting at. Paul is showing us that understanding God's will, and I would caveat that, by acting on it. That's, that's how you want to understand God's will. You know it, and then you act on it. Paul is showing us that understanding God's will is one way to redeem the time. Right? That's what he's trying to tell us. Understanding God's will in your life is one way to redeem the time and to make the best use of your time. And this, goes, this kind of echoes back to what Manny went through in chapter 5, back in verse 10. Paul said something very similar. He said, Walk as children of light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, or to discern the Lord's will. So brethren, in both of these cases, Paul is telling us to understand and discern God's will with the implied idea that we will do what? We will walk well, right? That we will come to know and discern and understand God's will. And then what will, what we, what will we do with that? We'll act on it. And so brethren, if we, if we are to redeem the time, then understanding God's will for us has to be our first priority, right? If we're going to ask ourselves, how do we then redeem the time and make best use of it? Well, brethren, we got to start here because of how vital it is to know what you ought to do in redeeming the time. And this is why I think Paul, he kind of front loads this as his first exhortation to you on how you are to redeem the time. And that's because, brethren, if you're going to redeem it, and as Paul says, you're going to redeem it well, <laughs> you need to know what God desires of us, and, he, and you need to know what God desires of you with your time, right? It, it wouldn't do you no good to try to go redeem it, and you don't know what God wants you to redeem the time for and make use of it for. So, brother, we, we need to know and come to understand God's will for us. Obviously, that can happen in a multiplicity of ways. Obviously, through the scriptures, as Paul is here instructing us, laying out God's will or understanding God's will in your life as you're being guided by the Spirit. But, but, but the, the, the main central point Paul is getting at is you need to know it, brother. But then here's the catch. Then you need to believe and accept that God's will for you is the best thing for you in the moment. Right? You, you, you have to start there, that God's will for us is the best thing for us, and that what God has for us will ultimately be the best use of your time. I mean, have you ever thought, Lord, I know this is your will, but I don't know if that's the best use of my time. Brother, we got to get pat. We have to un come to understand the Lord's will and say, that really is the best use of my time. Because listen, if, we, if you stumble here, brethren, then, then you'll stumble here through the rest. We have to come to, to grips with the reality that what God wills for us is not only the best thing for us, but the best use of our time. And so, brethren, redeeming the time needs to begin with knowing and then, brethren, joyfully, humbly accepting the will of the Lord for our lives. Because, listen, this is the only way that we will act on it, that, that, that we will act on what we know and then be able to make best use of our time and to redeem it.
And brethren, if we don't, then the reverse of Paul's statement will be true. We'll be fools. We'll be fools. And we don't want that. So there's this first exhortation on how do you redeem the time. Brethren, you got to know God's will, and then you got to act on it. Second, second exhortation comes here in verse 18. You guys want to look at verse 18 with me? Here's what Paul says. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So here, Paul's second exhortation, he, he, he does a very similar thing. He gives this negative and then this positive command. So what's the negative command? We are to not what? We're not to get drunk with wine, for what is this? This is debauchery. But what's the positive side of this? We are to be filled with the Spirit. So I know for you, just like it did for me, a question comes right to your mind. Why does Paul use this as the contrast right here? He could have used, I mean, how many sins can you think of where you're like, why didn't Paul contrast this with this or this with this, right? It, it can seem kind of random, Paul placing this here. Why does he contrast these two together? Because the insertion here of do not get drunk with wine just seems to be like, was Paul really thinking about this when he wrote it? Uh, so I don't know. But I think Paul does do this intentionally for a few reasons. And first would be this. And you can, go, you can go read the commentaries on this. There are all sorts of arguments for why Paul would place this here. And at the end of the day, I got through and said, mm, I don't care. I don't really want to try to land on one. But regardless, brethren, of the exact reason why Paul puts this here, why he mentions drunkenness, I think he first and foremost does it because of this. Brethren, the temptation to fall into drunkenness and to abuse wine, abuse alcohol is as old as the beginning of time. Go all the way back to Genesis, right? I mean, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't take long for men to begin to abuse something, and it has made its way through all cultures and all peoples of all times. And this, brethren, this warning pops up all over the place throughout the Bible. And guess where it pops up the most? Proverbs, in being wise, and so as it pops up throughout the Bible, and Paul is quoting this elsewhere, right? Paul quotes this elsewhere in, 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 in this kind of practice of getting drunk or drinking too much wine. And he says that this is going to exclude somebody from the kingdom of God. And so we need to realize this, brethren. This is not just a temptation and a warning that the Bible gives because outsider people do this kind of thing. That's obvious, we go down the main street, it's obvious people do this kind of thing. But brethren, the Bible doesn't give it simply because other people do it, but because the temptation and warning, brethren, is for you. Because the temptation is really real for you. And brethren, we live in a time all too similar to when Paul lived and when every other person lived in history where the temptation towards getting drunk is a real and especially here in Las Vegas, an ever-present temptation. This sin is not just something that the world participates in. Otherwise, Paul would never have to warn you about this kind of thing. It is a real temptation that faces you as a Christian. And brethren, we need to avoid it at all costs. But a second reason why I think Paul mentions this and puts this here is, is I think Paul is using this not to be super specific as to one particular action, but Paul is using a particular action as an example, an overriding example, right? A general example of what it looks like to be 
filled with the wrong thing. You catch me on that? Paul is giving the, the idea of being filled and being drunk with wine as an overriding example of what it looks like to be filled with the wrong thing. And ultimately, the result of what it looks like to be filled with the wrong thing. What does it look like to be filled with too much wine? Debauchery, not a good word. <laughs> and brethren, according to Paul, this is the case. This will always be the result. Getting drunk with wine is, as he says, he doesn't just say it results in debauchery. He actually says is debauchery, which you may not know that word. Once again, a lot of words we don't use in English still. Debauchery is something like excessive use of or indulgence in sensual pleasures. And I'll just kind of leave it at that. But you guys can probably pick up what I'm saying. Sensual pleasures. But it is not just an enjoyment of a sensual pleasure one time. It is an indulgence, a filling up of oneself. And so, brethren, listen, Paul is saying not only is it debauchery, but this would imply then with the word that falling into debauchery, whether it's through drinking or any other sensual pleasure, has other excesses of sin, right? Debauchery will always produce more debauchery. Someone who fills themselves with sensual pleasure will end up being filled with other sensual pleasures. This is what happens to one who is filled with wine, and it is what will happen if we are filled with any other kind of sensual pleasure. Brethren, it will always result in more and more sin. But... Paul wants us to contrast that way of thinking, that way of living, filling myself up with pleasure, and he contrasts this sinful kind of filling with what? The right kind of filling, right? The kind of filling that is the filling of the what? The filling of the Spirit, or with the Spirit, as he says. Do not get drunk with wine, which is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And brethren, this would make sense then for Paul to command this as it comes to redeeming the time. The filling, brethren, the, the, the filling of the Spirit in the Bible has this idea to do with service, right? To serve the Lord. And whatever capacity it is to be filled with the Spirit of God is to empower you for service to the Lord with whatever that would be. And brethren, this, for the Christian then, to rightly serve the Lord, to rightly be able to redeem the time, he's got to fill himself with the right things. You can't be going, filling yourself with sensual pleasures because that doesn't lead to service. That doesn't lead to redeeming the time. That leads to debauchery. But brethren, the filling of the Spirit is associated with work that gets done for the Lord. And for the Christian then to rightly serve the Lord in their life, brethren, you need it. You need the filling and empowerment of the Holy Spirit to simply even walk in this Christian life. Because it is this filling with the Spirit that causes us to walk rightly and ultimately redeem and make best use of the time. And brethren, this is so important for us to grasp here. As a Christian who by right, by status, has the Spirit of God, right? You're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God. There's no separation. You are in need to be continually, day to day, filled by the Spirit of God in order to perform the works of God in your life. 
Because let me ask you, brethren, how often must you redeem the time? All the time. <laughs> you don't redeem it one day and don't redeem it the other. And so, brethren, you need the continual empowerment and filling of the Spirit to redeem the time because it's not a one-time action. We are to redeem it, brethren, minute by minute, day by day, hour by hour. And so, brethren, we are therefore in need of God's help and Spirit to fill us minute by minute, day by day, hour by hour. We are in need to be filled by the Spirit of God if we're going to do this. And so that's the second command, the second exhortation. You need to understand the will of the Lord, the first one, the second one. Be filled with the right thing, which for Paul is one thing, the Spirit of God, continually, day by day. So now, the rest of this section, as we're going to see here in 19 through 21, is actually a continuation of this second exhortation. These are not new exhortations. They're related to this second one of being filled by the Spirit. And so what we're going to see here in 19 through 21 is that Paul is actually going to give you three, and, and I would say this too, these aren't the only ways I think Paul imagines, but we need to pay close attention to the three that Paul names as to what are some examples and ways by which we can be filled with God's Spirit. And Paul's going to give us three examples on how he intends the Christian to be filled by the Spirit of God. And so we want to pay attention to these. So let's, let's look here then, verses 19 through 21, Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to start there in 19. Actually, let me start in 18, because I was about to read it, but that's, that's kind of odd. Let me start in 18. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Right? There's our second exhortation. What are some examples, Paul? Here he begins in 19. Addressing one another... In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Verse 20, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So let's deal then with this first example that Paul gives us, right? So here the command to be filled with the Spirit of God is fleshed out in Paul's first example. And brethren, I think out of all these, this is the most astounding example, not because the other ones aren't astounding, but because this one may land on you for the first time and it may land on you hopefully fresh again. Paul's first example is such an astounding example because of what he says the filling of the Spirit comes through. What does Paul say right there? How can we be filled by the Spirit of God, brethren? What does he say? What's, what's, his, what's his first address to you on how you can be filled with the Spirit of God? Yeah, someone whispered it. Singing. That, that's the example. How can we be filled by the Spirit of God? He says, addressing one another with what? Just words, chatter about the news, sports? No. 
Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. What an astounding example, brethren. Singing is a means by which we receive the Spirit of God. To be filled with it. And one of the key things then Paul intends for us to deploy in our lives, he intends for you to employ in your own life, is to be filled by the Spirit of God through singing. And more specifically, Paul wants you to deploy this in your life through corporate singing, church singing of psalms and hymns to one another and to the Lord. Brother, what a statement. Won't ever rush through three songs again, will you? Brethren, this means that whatever we do as the body of Christ, whatever we do in this church, from here on out into the future, we cannot lack this reality in this church. We cannot lack the reality of singing in our church. We must, brethren, by, by the text, by God Himself speaking, we must be a singing church. We have to be. Because, brethren, right here, it is explicitly connected to our filling and empowering for service to the Lord. It's not an option. You want to know, brethren, what a healthy church looks like? Brethren, then you need to look to and listen to its corporate singing. You need to look to the singing of the church. If you want to go, what is the mark of this church? Is this a healthy church? Or brethren, then you need to look to and listen to its corporate singing. Now listen, I get this. This doesn't, singing does not make up of everything that makes a healthy church. It may not be all that makes a healthy church, but brethren, you listen to this. It is a necessary component of a healthy church. Now, Marks can make that one. A church, brethren, then we can conclude this. A church that is full of the Spirit of God and alive towards God is one that sings. But I want to shape this a little bit. Because notice that Paul shapes this a little bit. He doesn't just say, ah, singing in the church, moving on. That's how you're filled. Well, okay. He, he shapes this a little bit here in verse 19, right? He gives us, and I think he, he does this in a few ways. First, right here, he says, this singing is to be addressed to whom? Who do we address our songs to right there in verse 19? One another, right? We address our singing to one another, and how does he end the verse? To who else? Bible study answer right here. The Lord. Right? So listen, brethren. Coming to church every week, singing these songs. Coming to church and simply hearing somebody sing is not the fulfilling of this commandment. Paul doesn't say, come to church and hear somebody sing about the Lord and therefore be filled by the Spirit. No, 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 no. Coming to church and hearing someone simply sing is not the fulfillment of this commandment. Brethren, and, 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 and here's... The astounding reality of this. And I think you guys would agree. Those of you who had maybe been around in other churches, been in the evangelical realm for a number of years, brethren, this is why so many modern churches today, especially here in America, lack the Spirit of God in worship. 
This is why they lack it. This is why they lack the Spirit of God in their worship. And it's because the singing of the church, brethren, has turned into an event. Rather than a corporate action, it's turned into an event where everyone comes to watch someone else sing. And brethren, listen, this is not biblical worship. Proper singing, proper worship, according to Paul, is that we address The word could just be literally speak to, like you're talking to somebody. To address each other with our words when we sing. That's what we're coming to do. I'm coming to talk to Giovanni. I'm coming to talk to Nick. I'm coming to talk to Sergio when we come and we sing our songs. And so brethren, singing in corporate worship then is not a show. It's not a performance. And it's not one specific group of people who stand out from the rest. Brethren, singing in the church is an act by which all Christians, all y'all, every one of you down to my children, are to participate in. It is a corporate act, brethren, whereby we address and speak to one another in song. That's how Christians talk to one another. We sing to each other. And brethren, thereby... Thereby singing to one another, be filled with the Spirit of God. But Paul also says something else to shape this. Paul also says that this singing, yes, is to be done horizontally to one another. But then Paul also says this. This singing is to be done to who? To the Lord. Right? Our singing goes out across the room towards each other. And it goes up towards God. And brethren, this should also help shape our corporate singing as well. Our singing is directed to the Lord. (laughs) He uses that phrase particularly. This is the king. So brethren, we have to pay then careful attention to the content that is coming from our lips and rising up to heaven as we sing in corporate worship. Because brethren, this this singing, I mean, it's kind of funny. It was in the psalm, right? A sacrifice of thanksgiving rises up to the Lord. Right? Something as, as we sing, as the people come and they start speaking to one another, right? This stuff is rising up here to the Lord. And so, brethren, it's being rendered unto Him as worship, as sacrifice. And, brethren, this means then that the music needs to properly speak and address God for who He is and what He's done. Which means then that we all have a part in making sure that happens because we all are raising up this music, not just the pastors. Not just the men, ladies. All of us have a responsibility in them to make sure that this addressing of the Lord and each other in song is proper. It ought to be biblical, brethren. It ought to be song that treats God with holiness and reverence and honor that's due His name. But here's the final kicker. Here, brethren, is where we need to take heed in the matter. Because both of these things are true, right? Amen. I'll aim in both of those all day long. These, the, both of them are true. But, brethren, listen, we can have both and still miss the boat entirely. Hear me out on this. We could have both and still be missing something from our singing that hinders the Spirit of God being amongst us and filling us. You can have corporate participation in singing. Brethren, we could be loud and rowdy and hear everyone singing. We may even have all the right words, 
checked all the doctrinal boxes. We got the right hymns. We fitted in the right psalms to our singing. But brethren, listen, this is super important. This alone does not mean we have the filling and power of God in our worship. That alone doesn't mean we have it. Because here's how Paul ends the verse in 19, which is an incredibly important but small phrase here in the Bible. How does he end verse 19? In your heart. You guys hear that? In your heart. That's the ultimate qualification here. And I want you to hear this. this. That could be better translated as with. With your heart. And the reason that would be a better translation is it would give a stronger connotation that brethren, our singing ought to be this. It ought to be heartfelt. Now Paul uses this, and I want to demonstrate this because this is important. Paul uses this very similar phrase as he speaks of giving. He uses the same phrase, in the heart. But it's the, same, it's the same wording, same construction here as Paul uses this elsewhere. And he uses it when he speaks of giving. Here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 9. He says, Each one must give as he has decided where? In his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, right? So the same idea is embedded here, and it's right here in our text here in Ephesians. We address one another with the with singing, and then we sing and make melody to the Lord with our heart, or in our heart. Just like Paul commands here, you must give as you have decided in your heart. And so, brethren, I think what Paul is getting at is this. That phrase, in your heart, is not to be understood in a way that we commonly think of when we say, oh, deep, you know, deep within your heart, right? Um, this, this is not to be understood as you are deciding to do something in your heart silently, right? Have we all done that before? You know, I said in my heart, I will, I will do this or do that. What you're saying is I said it silently to myself, right? It's almost like, you know, when you're all kids, your parents gave you that coin when you're at the mall and you could throw it into the fountain, right? And so it's like, make a wish, you know, throw the coin in, right? It's not that kind of thing. It's not like the throwing of a coin into a fountain and you make a wish silently in your heart, brother. The idea of giving with your heart or singing with your heart is this idea that it would be giving God or rendering to God heartfelt obedience, heartfelt worship. Meaning, brethren, if it's heartfelt, it is not something, as Paul says, when it relates to giving, what is it not done by? It's not done under reluctancy. I don't really want to do this. Don't really want to give my money. Or it's not done under compulsion. You have to give. Okay, I guess I got a gun to my back. I'll give. Or brethren, it's not just something done out of pure duty. I want to obey because God says it. Brethren, just as God wants a cheerful giver who doesn't give from the heart reluctantly or under compulsion or out of simply pure duty, so too God wants a cheerful singer. God wants a cheerful giver. And brethren, you better believe God wants all of us to raise our voices up out of heartfeltness as a cheerful singer. And so, brethren, our singing and corporate worship ought to have this mark chiefly. 
Yes, it needs the other two. But this ought to be the chief mark in our worship is that worship ought to be heartfelt singing that is not governed by robotic obedience nor out of reluctancy or compulsion. Brethren, out of all the things, we want this to shape our singing because it is vital, according to Paul, as his first example, of how you're filled with the Spirit of God. So brethren, our songs, yes, they need to be holy and reverent. Brethren, they need to be addressed properly to one another and to the Lord. But, but this in itself will not do. Brethren, God wants a vibrant and fervent, heartfelt response towards Him for who He is and what He's done when we sing. That's what God is after. That is what pleases God as a pleasing aroma in our worship. And that's what God blesses. That's what God fills. That's what God sends His Spirit down upon. So there's our first example right there in verse 19. So Paul's now going to flesh out a second example. Well, what's another way Paul thinks you can be filled by the Spirit? Well, look at verse 20. Paul says here in verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father and the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, so here Paul in his second example is telling us how to be filled by the Spirit of God in order to redeem the time. And what is it? What does he say right there? Well, he says, by giving thanks. Now, this phrase right here, giving thanks, I don't think what Paul is saying is simply, you know, where, you know something good happens to you, you're going throughout your day, and you say, Lord, thank you for that. Lord, thank you, you know, Lord, Lord, thank you for that. Like little things here and there. I think what Paul has in mind, as he had with the singing, is this corporate reality here. Paul uses this phrase only one other time in Ephesians, and it's the same kind of thing. Paul is praying on behalf of the Ephesians when he says, I give thanks to the Father. Right? And then later he says, as I'm praying. Right? So that's, that's how he uses it. And when you go and look at this phrase elsewhere in almost all of Paul's epistles, it doesn't happen every time, but most of the time in his letters, it's a straightforward context. Paul is thinking about prayer, and Paul is often thinking about corporate prayer as we come and we pray together. So, brethren, I think the second example then here in verse 20 is a very straightforward one. It's not a very difficult one. Paul simply wants us to give thanks as we pray corporately. That's the second way. Now, now I know this one kind of probably hits us with the more mundane thing. We do it all the time. But I don't want us to lose the significance then of Paul saying this kind of thing. This is a means, brethren, that Paul is telling you that God uses to fill us with the Spirit. And so he directs us then, I think, to consider one important and vital thing then as we consider our prayers and giving thanks to God together corporately, he wants us to think of one particular thing, and that is this. We are exhorted in this text, in verse 20, to continuously be giving thanks to God and to be giving thanks for all things. So continuous thanks, never-ending thanks, and what do we give thanks for? Well, we give thanks for all things. And for Paul, this is a, a way to speak very, you know, very over the top to say, brethren, thanksgiving must never cease from the prayers of God's people. That's in essence what he's saying. Thanksgiving in our church, in our assembly, in our gathering together ought never to cease in our corporate praying together. 
And so, brethren, if we desire then to be a people, as Paul wants us to be, who are walking carefully, who want to redeem the time by being filled up by the Spirit, then we cannot forsake prayer. And more specifically, forsake giving thanks in prayer. We must never cease to do so. Because listen, this is also another mark. If thanks cannot be found within God's church, then know, brethren, that the Spirit of God cannot be found as well. If thanks does not issue forth from God's people praying, then you can know the Spirit of God is not coming down and filling those people. But brethren, we want to remember and recall to mind the good things, right? God has done many good things before. God has come down and filled us with His Spirit before in our midst. Has He not? Out of our giving of our thanks for answered prayers, for all the things that God has done on our behalf. So take that just as a simple warning and exhortation. Brethren, we have done it, but may it never cease to be in this church. Rather, brethren, always be reminded and recall to mind what God has done for us. And I don't mean that generically. Brethren, Think about what God has done for Redeemer as we've been here together. So that when we pray these prayers, this thanksgiving sounds personal. Lord, you answered our prayer about the shoemaker's visas when Redeemer prayed, thank you, and let the Spirit of God come down upon us. Brethren, we must always be recalling them to mind. Always, because this is how you give thanks. You have to recall things that God's done. You can't give thanks for something if you're not thankful for something that's, some, uh, something that's been done for you. Which means, brethren, we have to always, as a body, be recalling to mind what God's done for us. Yes, and God's saving us, but brethren, just as important, how God has sustained us and answered our prayers as a church. And brethren, if we do so, and we have been, and I want us to continue to do so, we will never ever in this body run out of a supply of thanksgiving. We'll never run out of a supply of things to give God thanks for. And brethren, listen, then we will never cease to give God thanks in our prayers together. Because the the, the well's too deep. We, We can never exhaust it. And that's what we want, brethren. We want to be giving thanks always and continually so that God would fill us up by His Spirit. So there's Paul's second Example of being filled up by the Spirit. Now here's Paul's last one as we come to our close here in verse 21. So Paul's last example here concludes here with this. Verse 21, if you want to look there. Paul says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So the third example then, brethren, Paul gives an even more generic kind of thing here out at the end, right? Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So here, this example, Paul's really kind of giving this general realm of life in the body by which we can have the filling of the Spirit of God. And, but the call here is this, submission to one another. And the call here is really a general call of submission, right? Not a specific one, because Paul will go through some specific calls of submission as we literally hit the next set of verses. Wives, husbands, children, masters, slaves. But here, Paul is, Paul is just giving this, this general call of submission, and it's one here, brethren, as you can recognize, of mutual submission, right? Where we all are looking to each other and being told amongst everybody in the body to mutually submit to one another. So, In the church, then, we ought to submit to one another and perform this kind of thing 
in love towards one another because we love one another and because we love the Lord. But it's not very clear what Paul means by submission. What does that look like in in mutual submission to one another? What's some concrete example that we could draw from this? Because Paul doesn't give it here. And, and, And often, brethren, when we think of this idea then of submission, we have this idea in our mind, which is true to some degree. Submission usually involves what idea? Well, it's somebody who's inferior serving someone who is superior, right? That's what submission is, right? Someone who is lower responds to someone who is higher, whether it's a command or it's a duty or it's service. And that's usually what we think. And and, and hear me out on this. I I don't think Paul is saying here that when when he calls us to submit to one another, the sort of thing where he wants us to start placing categories upon people in regards to their value or their worth, right? I I don't think that's the idea that Paul's getting behind. But, brethren, with Paul telling us to submit to one another, I do think he wants part of that, uh, that word and that definition to come home to us. And I think that he's right, really wanting us to get at the root of submission. And the root of submission entails this, brethren. It is counting others more significant than yourself. That's at the root of submission, right? If Say you are an inferior and you are going to serve as superior and submit. Whether you want to or not, you have to come to some reality that I need to count this person more significant in myself, even if it doesn't mean I'm a lesser human being, because I don't think that's what Paul's obviously getting at. But we do need to get to the heart of what the word means, the root of this word. Well, brethren, submission, mutual submission to one another looks like counting one another more significantly than yourself. And I think this idea of submission is what Paul has in mind when he tells us to submit to one another. I believe he's carrying this idea of submission so that we would begin to think, brethren, as a church, we would begin to think of one another, everybody here, as more significant than ourselves. And Paul puts this in Philippians, right? He says this in Philippians chapter 2. Listen, listen to how Paul puts this. You know, the word submission is not here, but the idea is here. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, which would be to put yourself number one, to put yourself as the superior. But in humility, right, which is becoming low, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And brethren, right there, that example in Philippians is exactly what I think Paul has in mind when he says there in 21, submitting to one another. Paul is telling us that a way, and this is, this is, this is another one of those ones where I was like, wow, I've not thought about submission to each other in the church like this before. But Paul is telling you that a way that God fills us with His Spirit is through This general love and submission to one another. But specifically, brethren, that God fills us with His Spirit in our acts of service towards one another. In our submission to one another. As you count yourself lowly and you consider someone else more highly than yourself and you serve them as one who submits under them, 
like an inferior, not saying you are an inferior, but like an inferior, brethren, that is a means by which God fills us with His Spirit. And so, brethren, these acts of service, of this mutual submission towards one another, what it ultimately is, is displaying before God and others that we consider them more highly than we consider ourselves. And therefore, what? We're submitted to them. It shows that we love them. It shows that we have a mutual understanding for one another. But more importantly, brethren, it is through this submission, through this service to one another, that God is pleased to fill you and to fill us with His Spirit, and give us a greater measure of Himself. Brethren, it's through this submission God fills us, empowers us, so that we can do the very thing that Paul told us at the beginning. Walk well and redeem the time. Serving one another. Submitting to one another. And brethren, what a mark of the church. To walk into a Spirit-filled church is to walk into a church where people are serving one another. What? What an idea. What a thing Paul puts before us right there. So brethren, as we come to this, then let's consider these things again, because that's a lot. That's a lot to consider here in this text. So let's be careful then, as Paul says at the beginning, look carefully then how you walk. Well, brethren, let's give careful attention to these things. You remember why you ought to redeem the time. Brethren, the days are full of difficulty and hardship. And brethren, then you remember the second. You remember that you can redeem the time, and you remember how you can redeem the time. Brethren, you can redeem the time by being satisfied and content in God's will, by being filled by the Spirit, through what? Through singing and prayer and service. And brethren, if we do this, if we do this, we can be assured, we can be assured that we will be empowered and filled by God's Spirit to walk this life. And not just to walk it, but as Paul says, that we would do it well. That we would make the best use of our time. And brethren, by doing so, that we would glorify God. So let's pray.